This podcast is brought to you by Greystone Theological Institute. Faithful theological wisdom, edification, and training in a rapidly changing world. Visit greystoneinstitute.org. This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. I believe that God gives us the sacraments so that we can taste and see and smell and touch and receive with our whole being His gospel and grow closer to Him. Hello and welcome to Theology on the Go. I am Jonathan Master, joined as always by my friend and co-host, James Dolzel. James, how are you? I'm doing well, Jonathan. Great to be here. Looking forward to our discussion today. I am too. Uh, We are welcoming as our guest today someone who has been a guest before on this show. Readers of Alliance Sites will know him well from uh, different things that he's written. Uh, Pastor Ken Golden is the organizing pastor at Sovereign Grace Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Davenport, Iowa, and he's also the author of Presbytopia and Entering God's Rest. So, Pastor Golden, thanks for joining us today. Good to be here. You know, I wanted to ask you about how this book fits in with your other books. I don't know if you had a, a grand plan to write on all of these things, to write a little introduction to ecclesiology and a little introduction to the Sabbath, and then a little introduction now to the Lord's Supper. Is that is that how it worked? You had these things in mind, or, or did you um, simply sort of tackle them as you saw a need? Yeah, I think it's more of the latter, and definitely more of a spontaneous um as needed approach. Uh, I wrote Presbytopia uh, after using an outline for years and seeing an opportunity to have more, what I felt was more of a street level accessible uh, resource for people doing membership classes. And I wrote the Sabbath book as a result of uh, some of my own uh, struggles over the years and, and clarifying some things that I thought might be helpful for discussion. Um, and I wrote this book uh, as a result of um, um, bringing, moving our church in the direction of weekly communion when I started here in the Quad Cities and seeing some other things come up, uh, other questions regarding uh, the use of the elements, uh, who should be administering it. Uh, other things came out of this, and I felt it was useful uh, to, you know, to have an accessible book on it. Well, just as a word of personal testimony, Presbytopia was the book that we used in our congregation in Pennsylvania for new members classes. And it really did do a nice job of, of introducing all of those uh, matters that you discussed. So, so thanks for your, your work on that. So, so with this book then, was that your, um, you, you said you had in mind moving the congregation to weekly communion, but there's obviously more to the book than, than just that argument. So, so what were some of the main topics that you thought needed to be discussed when, when giving an introduction uh, to the Lord's Supper? Yeah, I feel like uh, the Lord's Supper is one of those things that people approach with all kinds of baggage. You know, they come into our tradition a lot of times from other traditions and uh, sometimes react uh, very strongly against those traditions. So people, when it comes to frequency, people often are reluctant to go more frequent because of experiences they've had in churches that are very frequent. Uh, in terms of uh, what to use, uh, we, we incorporated wine into the Lord's Supper a couple of years ago because it was the first opportunity we had. We were renting from a, an organization that forbade it. 
so that issue has created some challenges as well. And we wanted to be able to present uh, to our people and the broader audience that uh, there are good reasons to use wine, but there's also pastoral reasons to consider a mixed tray. So a lot of practical things have, have led to writing this book in general. Let me build toward that because I do want to return to the question of wine. Uh, you emphasize it. I think, I think uh, Bob Lethem does in his book as well um, on the Lord's Supper from several years ago. Um, I, I wanted to start more broadly with the question of the, the supper as a means of grace and of, and of blessings that are uniquely attached to worthy partaking of the supper. Uh, and I think the question, particularly perhaps for evangelicals that are from less of a high church tradition, I think that we think to ourselves, but can't I get those same blessings through fellowship and singing and prayer and preaching? And isn't that really, um, is there something unique? Maybe that's what I mean. Is there something uniquely uh, beneficial to us in the partaking of the supper, distinct from the other means of grace? Yeah, I, I think that's a great question. Uh, preaching is obviously, as Protestants, we believe that that is the primary means of grace. So therefore, if you are if you're a church that holds to less frequent communion, you're still getting uh, the main course, so to speak. Uh, but we're not just we're not just preachers with ears and brains. We're we're holistic. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have we have various sensory. Uh, ways of, of, of receiving uh, the world around us and, and apprehending God. And because of that, I believe that God gives us the sacraments so that we can taste and see and smell and touch and receive with our whole being his gospel and, 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 and grow closer to him. And the sacraments do that in, in, in a way that the word doesn't, or perhaps, you know, not that the word doesn't, feed us, but that the sacraments do this on a creaturely level. Right. In a way that addresses a part of us uh, that uh, a sermon isn't exactly designed to do. Absolutely. Can you, you make a, a strong case here following um, Calvin, really just in, in our, in our own tradition uh, of the, the real presence of Christ at the supper. In other words, you're, you're contrasting, what your what uh, your position is from a position that says this is just a remembrance, this is just a memorial, and certainly in our broader evangelical circles, that's a that's a point of contention because the the widespread view among broad evangelicalism is that this is just a memorial. It's a time for you to be reminded of something and perhaps even reminded of it in a tangible way, as you said, in a in a sensible way. Uh, not just through your ears, but but through your sense of taste. But but w- what is it that is significant about uh, m- moving beyond that, which is biblical teaching? It is a remembrance, and also recognizing that the Bible teaches that Christ, by the Holy Spirit, is is present with His people in a particular way as we partake. Yeah, it's interesting that word mem- remembrance. Actually, uh, Roman Catholicism. Uh, uses that word to describe uh, Eucharistic sacrifice, which I which I talk about in the appendix. Uh, so that that word itself um, needs to be interpreted. But given what you're saying, um, yeah, I, I think the scriptures themselves, I think, are, are clear in in showing us that that there's more to this than meets the eye. This is more than simply something to jog our memory 
and cause us to, to be more devotional, that there's an aspect of feeding, there's a, a participation, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, a koinonia, a fellowship. Uh, there's, there's a relational quality to this. It's not just cognitive knowledge, it's relational knowledge. Uh, it's yada, it's gnosko. Um, it's something more than just appealing to our intellect, appealing to our memory. Um, and I, I think there's, there's adequate scriptures to show that. But even on a practical level, if you don't believe those things, then why would you even celebrate it on a monthly basis? Why not just annually? How often do we need our memory jogged of something that is not actually doing anything to us? I guess that's my question. I was going to ask this question. What is the benefit? And would you describe the view that you're advocating in the book as a real presence view? Uh, is that qualified, perhaps? Uh, yeah. A real presence view. Yeah, I, I like the language of real presence, although I, I do think that language does have some baggage. So this, the real spiritual presence, uh, perhaps adding that adjective, yeah. works better. Uh, chapter, my chapter on um, uh, theological flavors um, does flesh some of that out. And I'm, I'm very sympathetic to, to what the higher church traditions are, are offering. I do think they, uh, there is some baggage with those views. But I'm, what, would be a, what would be one or two of those? I'm thinking we have some listeners, I'm sure, uh, who've never heard of real presence except in a negative light. Um, yeah. And so what, maybe just, maybe we don't have to expound on them, but what are a couple of those, do you think? Yeah, so Roman Catholicism and, and the Lutheran traditions I tackle in chapter two. I also make allude, I allude to uh, Eastern Orthodoxy as well in passing, especially at the, in the appendix on Pado Communion. Um, but I think Catholicism and, and, and Lutheranism are trying to, they're, they're aiming for, for something more objective. Um, you know, we Protestants recoil when they think of the mass, but what the mass is, mass is offering is certainty. You know what you're getting if you believe that the bread and wine is being transformed, and and, and there's some comfort in that. Now, now there's there's challenges with that too, and and I wanted to be fair-minded. The other reason I wrote the book is because I feel like as Protestants we tend to talk past people, and perhaps the other traditions do too. Um, having had a lot of dialogue with Catholics and Orthodox people over the last couple of years, I think they talk past us. They misrepresent us and we misrepresent them. And we don't have to agree on everything. Obviously, there's points that we have to disagree on. But I think it's it, it's a good practice to represent opponents fairly and not simply, um, you know, set, set up straw men. So this book is really trying to dispel the straw man approach so then when we talk about the mass, we understand where they're coming from. We're not, we're not painting a, you know, a mirage, but we're, we're right. trying to represent what they actually teach. Um, so Roman Catholicism is very objective in, in basically the sign and the reality become one. And they also practice a Eucharist. They believe in a Eucharistic sacrifice, which I cover in the appendix. Um, both of those things are, act, are accomplishing something for the recipient. Uh, there, there's, no, there's no ifs, ands, or buts. Um, it's acting ex opere operato. It's acting mm -hmm. upon the person by the nature of the act itself. 
Uh, Lutherans are a little bit um, less, um, there's a little more tension in Lutheranism in that uh, what you receive, is the, the, the sign and the, and, and the reality are connected, but they're not inseparable. They're not quite as inseparable. And, and that view is closer to our view than, than the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox view. But that view creates other problems because it, it, it creates problems with the person of Christ. It, they're teaching on the, um, not only the, the deity, but the humanity of Christ being present everywhere, being present at every table or altar, they would use that word, um, does create problems with Christology, problems with what we have always held since, uh, since Chalcedon. This is a long, long-standing debate we have with the Lutherans. Hmm. We'll scale down from the Lutherans and we'll come to perhaps let's call it the Calvinist view. Um, I, I'm allowing other reform streams to maybe be more memorialist, but the Calvinist view to someone who says, but doesn't, doesn't the qualifier spiritual sort of suck the real out of the real? Uh, and so I don't want to get too far in the weeds, but just to ask briefly, and then I'll let Jonathan uh, take us where he wants to with his own questions. But what is the real fellowship or the koinonia that's going on with Christ Jesus uh, through the means of the supper? Um, and I, I'm not talking so much about a, a feeling uh, that you get, but what, because you, you mentioned the point of objectivity and wanting assurance and that being uh, something, a commendable desire. Um, how does our view of the supper offer that without some of the Christological complications of the other views you mentioned? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I think, again, it goes back to the meanings that we pour into words. So a lot of people think of spiritual, they might say, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. What do they mean by that? They, they view religious as, as a negative, it's institutional, it's dead orthodoxy, but they view spiritual as nebulous, as whatever I'm feeling, it's very subjective. But that's not the way the Bible defines spiritual. The Bible defines spiritual as of the spirit, the Holy Spirit, this third person of the Trinity. So we're talking about a person. We're talking about somebody whose one of his primary tasks is bringing us to Christ. Christ ascends and the spirit descends in the book of Acts. So the, the, Jesus has promised us that he's going to send us this helper, this, this advocate, this person who will take his words and give them to us and, and bring, and, and I would argue, bring us to him. So Jesus, Jesus is a person. He is fully God and fully man, and we can't plumb the depths of how that works um, exhaustively. The secret things belong to God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever. Deuteronomy 29, 29. But we do know that Christ is in a place. He's fully human. He's not omnipresent in his humanity. So the spirit who is omnipresent, who, who does not have a human body, brings us to Jesus. So I think Calvin's contribution here is really helpful in that rather than a descent, what, what is being accomplished is an ascent. Mm. We are being brought to Jesus. And in such a mysterious, profound way that Calvin himself says, I, I'd rather than understand it, I experience it. And he took some flat. Yeah, no, that, that, too. that doesn't sound like a very Calvinesque thing to say <laughs> um, that, he, that he experiences it. But maybe that goes back to your point earlier about these being sensible signs, things that mediate or help or, or, or enhance spiritual realities in ways that 
the mere cognitive isn't doing. Yeah, it's not very Calvinistic because our tradition, its greatest strength is its greatest weakness. We're, we're a tradition of eggheads. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, and now you're talking about experiences. <laughs> right. And that's that's taboo language for an egghead, yeah. you know, who, who who try to to make cognitive sense of things. Mm. And I wanted to end on a on a pastoral note, but it's related to the things that that James was just asking about. When we look back at the 16th century, the 17th century the debates over the Lord's Supper and the nature of the Lord's Supper were were among the most significant debates, theological debates that that we we see today in our context, in our let's say reform context, but especially broader evangelical context. It's not the case. Um, so when we're speaking pastorally with friends and others, we'll often say, look, you need to go to a church that faithfully preaches the word of God. You know, you have to look for that. If you move to a new city, go to a congregation that faithfully preaches God's word. I've, I've probably never heard someone say, make sure you go to a, a, a church that faithfully preaches God's word and also properly understands the sacrament of the Lord's supper would you give that advice to someone? And would, would you put it in that same sentence? Um, how, how do you see this playing out pastorally among friends, family members, others whom you are, are advising? Should we look at it as a first order issue in that same sense? Yeah, that's, I don't, I don't address that question, but it's a very, it's a really important question. There are so many factors that cause people to be transient in our culture, and people are constantly moving in and out of our churches. And obviously, we want them to go to a Bible-believing church. We'd like them to go to a church of our tradition that that holds to our beliefs, our confession, uh, but that's not always going to happen. So I think the preaching of the Word, which is the primary means of grace, you know, has to be in the forefront. You know, is Christ being preached? And if not, then that's, that's, that's not a healthy place to go. I think the sacraments perhaps are secondary to that because they are secondary. They requ- they're, they're absolutely, the word is essential for the sacrament to be a sacrament. I think here we have to be careful that we don't simply steer people to the church that, you know, if the church has better preaching, sure. But if, but if the church is memorialistic, if it's Zwinglian, I would challenge challenge people to, to question whether that's better than a higher church uh, tradition that holds to a view of the sacrament that maybe goes too far with it being the real presence versus no presence at all or the real absence. I think the real absence can, can lead to um, a spiritual malnutrition, just as the real presence misunderstood can lead to other problems. Um, so I, I think that's a very complicated issue, ideally, we're going to send somebody to a church that holds to a balanced view, a reform view. But given given the fact that we don't have OP churches and PCA churches in every, you know, place in America and around the world, it's always going to be an imperfect situation. Um, but to not think that the Zwinglian position is better than perhaps a, a, an unbalanced high church position. Well, it is a complex issue. You have written a very accessible book and we're grateful for it. 
Ken, thanks for joining us uh, in, for these few minutes today. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Jonathan. Um, thank you, James. Appreciate it very much. James, this was one of those conversations that I think we could have continued for another hour or so. There are so many different avenues to explore. I want to convey, though, to our listeners, it's this is a very short book. It's, a, it's an accessible book. It really is something that I'm quite confident anyone listening to this podcast could read and understand. And so even though there are deep issues, and even some of the ones he touched on at the end, I need to chew on a little bit. There are deep issues, but nonetheless, he puts it all very succinctly and and clearly in this little book. I agree. And I, I like Ken's willingness to challenge us toward uh, even uh, let's call it his, his sort of charitable view of Mm -hmm. the more high church tradition, which maybe for our listener base, uh, at least for some, I would imagine is kind of an, an end of the spectrum unexplored and maybe they have a bad experience with it or, you know, kind of a, a routine drudgery of liturgical observance, but you know, we've all seen this that just doesn't, doesn't have understanding. And Ken, I think does a good job in his book of, of relating the preached word uh, to the word, uh, you know, demonstrated in the sensible signs of the, of the Lord's supper, the, the bread and the wine. Um, and he doesn't, he doesn't disengage those uh, where the supper sort of stands as a thing on its own. Uh, and I think this is part of the problem of some of the, some liturgical traditions. Uh, the supper almost takes on a, a magical, unexplicated, unexplained power. And I think he mitigates that concern well without sapping uh, the real power of this sacrament. Uh, so I, I found the book challenging, but Maybe its challenge is also its clarity. Uh, he doesn't pull punches, but it's also not, um, it's not an angry, ostentatious book. It's not a scolding kind of book, uh, but it is a straight-talking book. Uh, and I Yeah, in that sense, it's, that it's what you'd expect from a good, faithful pastor. You know, I, I think it's worth underscoring something that you said and that he said at the end. We would all agree that the preaching of the word is primary in our analysis, evaluation, and and, yeah. and even our growth in the context of a local church. So the, one of the dangers in isolating one particular issue is that issue takes on a prominence that goes beyond the preaching of the word. And certainly Ken doesn't do that. In fact, he explicitly avoided that, but, but it can happen. Uh, so we want to say, you know, the preaching of the word is, is the primary uh, means that God uses to grow us in grace. Yeah, and he makes that clear, but I do appreciate his emphasis upon the uniqueness of the supper uh, as a as a means of grace and the benefit that it is, and even and even his emphasis upon weekly observance as a norm, and perhaps even maybe not explicitly put that way, but a New Testament expectation uh, that this is a normal and regular part of the Christian's pilgrimage. I agree. Well, the book is called Eating and Drinking with God. It's published by the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, and so you can get it at reformedresources or alliancenet.org. If you'd like to enter to uh, for a chance to win a copy, a free copy of it, you can do that at, at uh, placefortruth.org. Click on the Theology on the Go link, and there'll be an opportunity there for you to enter your information for the chance to win. 
and as always, we want to thank you for listening to Theology on the Go. We love hearing from you. We love finding out that these are helpful episodes. If you have suggestions for other topics or books, please pass those along to us. Pass along this podcast to those whom you think might be helped by it. If you're on Apple Podcasts, you can rate uh, and review the podcast, and that gets the word out even more. Again, thank you for listening to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. University and seminary credentials are not the end, but only steps in a lifelong calling to theological wisdom, and theological wisdom is greatly needed today. Greystone Theological Institute exists to resource rigorous and effective continuing education and scholarship by hosting full and micro-course modules, study days, seminars, workshops, and other events designed for advanced theological edification and fellowship. Exploring and deploying advances in scholarship across the disciplines, Greystone sharpens skills, provokes new questions, and reconsiders old ones in the mode of confessional reformed Catholicity. Join the next course or event at Greystone in Pittsburgh or online or become a Greystone member at greystoneconnect.org today and enjoy access to the rapidly growing online library of all modules, events, and seminars for the price of a paperback. Greystone Theological Institute. Faithful theological wisdom, edification, and training in a rapidly changing world. Visit greystoneinstitute.org for more about Greystone and greystoneconnect.org to become a member today.